0: I think something that I would change um, is being able to give people a better sense of the kind of power that they have.
1: Durham, a podcast about people, homes, land, power, and data, of course. I'm John Colleen with DataWorks NC. And I'm Latina Durant with DataWorks NC. In this episode,
2: we will talk about evictions in Durham, landlords and tenant protections that have been put in place since the beginning of the coronavirus pandemic. We'll kick things off with a recap of what has happened in terms of evictions in Durham with a review of the data.
1: And following that, we'll unpack some of the work we just wrapped up on a project called Youth Voices and the Right to Housing during COVID-19. This was a project supported by the Annie Casey Foundation and the National Neighborhood Indicators Partnership, also known as NNIP. And in that, we'll hear from Jesse McCoy from the Duke Civil Justice Clinic and the Durham Eviction Diversion Program.
2: And after Jesse catches us up on recent changes to protections for tenants, we'll take some time to catch up with the other leaders of our Youth Voices Project. Genesis Danqua, Mad Bankson, and Safe Widman about what young people are fighting for where housing is concerned.
1: Shall we get started? Let's do it. During a typical year in Durham County, around 10,000 households receive a first eviction notice, otherwise known as a summary ejectment. Pre-pandemic, 2020 was on track to match that typical rate with about 2,000 summary ejectments filed before the first recorded COVID case on March 12th. The pandemic and the policy actions that followed changed the rental eviction landscape dramatically. Uh, For one, there were many, many fewer evictions filed during the year than typically would have been the case. Uh, In total, almost 4,000 summary ejectments were filed in 2020 compared to the usual 10,000 or so This reduction is really, you know, in part due to the patchwork of diversion measures that came from the state, federal, and local levels. Uh, Most prominent among them is the CDC, quote unquote, moratorium that happened and, and went into action on September 4th. And then there was a governor's bill in North Carolina that reinforced it. But it's vitally important that we recognize that these protections, more truly intended to prevent people being exposed to COVID at the courts than to keep them from being displaced from their apartments, have not stopped landlords evicting tenants. Uh, In fact, 1,800 or so evictions were filed after March 12th when the first COVID case was reported, as I've mentioned, in Durham County. Of these 1,800 pandemic evictions, About 775 of them occurred since September 4th. That's between September 4th and and December 31. September 4th, of course, is when the CDC moratorium uh, was uh, implemented. One of the most important displacement trends during this pandemic year is that of mass evictions and corporate owned apartment complexes. We saw persistent rounds of evictions in specific communities, despite each successive step by the governor, by the CDC, by the Chief Justice of North Carolina to prevent court filings against tenants. This was happening even while some of the worst actors in this were receiving Paycheck Protection Program loans. General Services Corporation, or GSC, as we we commonly know it, uh, they're based in Richmond, Virginia, filed evictions against 274 households during 2020 most prominently uh, at Duke Manor Apartments. Dasmond Residential, a corporation based in New Jersey and owner of the Emerald Place Apartments was the second highest ranked evictor of families during the pandemic year, filing 132 evictions. Palms Associates, owners of the Muse Apartments, Asia Capital Real Estate, which owns Foxfire Apartments and Ginkgo Residential also evicted roughly 100 or more households during the year. And as 2021 moves into its third month here now, we see that again in January and February, GSC has continued to evict tenant families very, very prominently at Duke Manor Apartments. In February in particular, however, it was Concordia Properties, which is an investment company with properties throughout the mid-Atlantic and Southeast and Maryland and in Philadelphia that conducted the largest single eviction of the year in Durham County. Management of Concordia's Marquis Gardens Apartments at 901 Chalk Level Road filed 38 evictions against their tenants during February, 2021 alone. And finally, it really has to be said again that these are numbers that reflect formal court-processed evictions. Landlords also continue to evict tenants by other informal practices to raising rents, not renewing leases and other paths to remove tenants uh, despite the pandemic, despite the loss of work with nearly 45,000 people filing their first unemployment in 2020. And these other informal eviction processes all contribute to the crisis of displacement and gentrification we continue experiencing. So it's much more than what we're just talking about with these court-processed evictions, the numbers that we commonly report at DataWorks.
2: So Jesse, what's the most recent Um, news when it comes to evictions and tenant protections nationally and locally as well. In December, there were 216 evictions that were filed, which was up from November, which was 129. Um, So if we don't have, if the Biden administration is not successful, um, what do we expect for January and February?
3: Well, um, I'll say two points about that. So the first thing is in November, we still were very much under the CDC moratorium. And the suspicion at that time was that in December, I think December 31st, that was going to be the end of the moratorium. That's where the CDC initially stopped it. So what you saw in December is landlords who were prepared for December to be the end of the moratorium filing cases so they can get on a January docket. Um, what happened is Congress did approve an extension of the eviction moratorium. So all the cases that were filed in December have now been moved to February. In addition to any of the cases that really have been filed at any point in time from the entry of the CDC order in August, uh, till now, they're all scheduled throughout February, uh, and depending on what happens next, we'll determine if they're moved. Um, I I also want to say, you know, in, In assessing this, one of the things from a landlord perspective that has come up is landlords are trying to figure out what they are supposed to do because they also have expenses. Some landlords in some cases have not been paid rents since March, Mm -hmm. um, given the variety of different moratoria that have come through. Mm -hmm. Uh, And so there's a push at this point to try to recoup what they can as far as getting the property back and re-renting it to someone else. I don't know that during a global pandemic that's necessarily going to be feasible or that there's gonna be economically friendly to their interest, but it is a legitimate concern because the moratorium never established rent supplementation. It only established uh, a, a delay or postponing of the actual eviction. Uh, we in North Carolina have been fortunate to have Programs that would step in to try to pay off people's rental um, um, rent balances and deficits based on their own uh, rent supplementation, but that has not been something that's been mandated by any other federal legislation. So currently, we don't have any policies that will pay landlords directly. Currently, we don't have any federal policies that pay landlords anything, right? The landlords are just kind of at the whim of, you know, if a person's working Uh, and there, there, I I should say there are a lot of different aggregate factors, right? So there there was unemployment benefit extension and a lot of people paid their rent or were able to pay their rent because they got the unemployment benefits. Uh, There was the stimulus payment. So a lot of people were able to pay a small chunk of uh, their rent deficits because they got the stimulus check. Uh, But as far as any kind of federal legislation just expressly for paying landlords for this time that they've been uh, exercising ownership of the property and management of the property without receiving rent, there there is none. So what kind of policy protections do we
2: need then that would, you know, be a comprehensive um, answer to some of these
3: issues, especially for, for landlords and for tenants? So it's it's a very complicated question because no two evictions are the same, right? So we at the beginning of this thing, we had people who were losing their jobs. They didn't necessarily have a prospect of getting a new job because the state government was also under a phased out shutdown. And because they were shut down and they couldn't work, uh, rent deficits continued to accumulate. Uh, for some of those people, since we're now phased out of those closings and we're, you know not 100%, but we're pretty much back to normal, uh, they've been able to recover and they're able to take care of rent balances due moving forward, but cannot pay off the ballooning deficit that they had experienced before they got um, any kind of benefit or any kind of new employment. Uh, for some people, they still are looking for work. Um, unfortunately, we've seen a, a increase in the number of people who are quote unquote, essential workers. Uh, people who are home health aides, people who work in nursing homes, uh, who get exposed to COVID. And if they get exposed to COVID, there's a mandatory 14-day period. So for someone who's a wage worker who gets paid every two weeks, that's essentially an entire pay period that they're unable to work. And then I've even seen now cases where the person does the 14-day quarantine period, they come back to work, but then that first week that they come back to work, they're exposed to another uh, person with COVID and now they're back out again. So uh, until we get some global stability on um, COVID and really have people uh, full-scale testing and at this point getting vaccinated, and until we have a a sufficient extension of unemployment benefits or just a a rush to get people back employed so that they can uh, pay for the deficits that they're accumulating. I don't really know what the answer would be. I think the government's response has been moratoria, which is good as far as physically keeping people in the unit, but we also have to be cognizant that the moratoria doesn't pay anybody. So from a landlord perspective, they feel like their properties are being commandeered by the government for a contract that they never agreed to uh, and they haven't been paid for it, which. I mean, there is a priority of of what's more important—people or profit—that needs to be considered. But I also think if someone hasn't gotten rent since March, I can understand why they're upset in January if they uh, are, are unable to do anything that they feel like will minimize their expenses. I mean, you know, I've read where landlords are saying, you know, we
2: owe money on these properties, and if we don't pay them, we'll get uh, foreclosed on, it and you'll you know be out of home a house anyway. So, you know, I don't I don't know what the answer is.
3: And even that's tricky because a lot of landlords say that, but there have been extensive protections to prevent foreclosure, especially if you have federally backed uh, a home with a federally backed mortgage, there've been protections. So those landlords aren't at risk of being foreclosed on. But if you are a landlord with a private mortgage through a private bank, it's very much a possibility.
2: On on, On the DataWorks blog, we, um, listed several landlords that were evicting throughout 2020, even though we had a moratorium. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm wondering what your thoughts are about how they were able to kind of get by that. So, you know, were they able to skirt it because they were claiming that evictions for, were for different reasons other than non-payment? Or how do you, how do you think that happened?
3: So I know for, um, initially, the initial moratorium we had was the CARES Act. And that ran from March through July 25th Uh, with the cares act though. The only thing that it protected was tenants who received uh, some kind of federal subsidy or tenants who lived in a place that was covered with a federally backed mortgage. So again, if if you were a landlord and you had private mortgages or you just owned your stuff outright and you weren't accepting stuff like section eight vouchers or any kind of VA voucher um, then you you were free to go forward and continue to evict in north carolina the thing that stopped more landlords from being able to evict and our numbers being a lot higher specifically during those summer months was really an act of the um outgoing chief justice who issued um basically for the sake of court staff she didn't want court staff contracted COVID because the court was being used as incubator for COVID, she reduced the amount of cases that would be on the docket to only those cases that were essential and and, uh, evictions were not deemed to be an essential case. So landlords could always file, but they wouldn't get a court date. And oftentimes that uh, frustrated landlords because what's the point of paying the money if I can't see it through? Uh, so you see the drop off from landlords just because they couldn't access the court system in a manner that they typically could. Uh, but this wasn't—I I don't know that that was ever the intent per se of that judicial order. Um, they just knew, you know, we we had a period during the summer where it was like every week, every court system was having a clerk or a judge or somebody test positive for COVID, and in hearings, particularly with evictions. The concern is that these hearings start off in small claims court, which are very small courtrooms. And oftentimes those courtrooms are already overcrowded because evictions were already a crisis before COVID. So you're putting everybody at risk. You're putting the magistrate, the attorneys, the other people in the courtroom, uh, even sheriffs who have to stand near the courtroom for security. You're putting everybody at risk of contracting COVID. And I think the chief justice was very cognizant about the fact that not just in small claims, but in all the courtrooms, that's the risk that you're running unless you reduce uh, the number of cases that are being heard. So what else do tenants need to
2: know? Is there anything that you can uh, suggest that if you're going through an eviction or about to,
3: uh, if if you're at risk for being evicted? I, I think the main thing that people need to know is first to call 211. 211 uh, keeps a database organized of all the resources that are available in your local area. And what we've seen is on a statewide level, not all counties have the same resources, right? So because nobody knows what resources their particular county has, 211 is a good starting place for that. If you are fortunate enough to be in Durham County, Durham uh, had the foresight at least to, to have an eviction diversion program, which kind of already, uh, without knowing COVID was coming, kind of already prepared us for this. That program operates by people calling into DSS to request rental assistance. uh, And that number is 919-560-8000. Once they request rental assistance, they can also seek a legal review of their case. And this is particularly interesting because uh, at the beginning of this, we noticed that there were a lot of people who had significant habitability concerns. And what we didn't want is uh, the Department of Social Services paying good money for a place that's infested with bed bugs, roaches, something like that. So uh, what we do is we do a legal review to find out if there are any compelling habitability concerns for which the person may have claims against the landlord or may be entitled to what's called a rent abatement in the eyes of the law. And a rent abatement is just a discount on rent given the defective condition of the unit. Um, So it, it, it pays to have a legal review, but not every county has an eviction diversion program. So if if you're in a county that does not, uh, you need to definitely call 211, find out what's there. If you have a county that is served by a legal aid office, you can always request um, legal aid counsel as well through 211, and they can connect you with the centralized intake unit for legal aid. Now, you said you were prepared for COVID. What, what, is, what do you mean by that? So in Durham County, we recognize that uh, evictions were at a crisis level even before COVID got here. So in 2017, we organized the Eviction Diversion Program, which is a partnership between Durham County's Department of Social Services, Legal Aid of North Carolina's Durham office, and the Duke Civil Justice Clinic. And the whole point of that program was to reduce the number of eviction judgments in Durham County. Um, we, we are able, even now we're able to boast that in 79% of the cases that we are involved with, we have been able to avoid eviction judgments. So, you know, eviction judgments, when I look at an eviction, I see there are levels to the degree of damage that evictions do. The first thing that everybody thinks about is the physical removal from the property. And that is for us, the last thing that happens in the process But what people don't often understand until after they're trying to relocate is the credit implications of the eviction. So at the time, an eviction judgment would automatically seemingly bar you from any prospective landlord being willing to take a chance on you. And what that does is it reduces the quality of the units that you're able to get until you deal with landlords who may may be a little bit sketchier than most but they can charge you an exorbitant rate because they know you don't have another alternative. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, the other thing about it is we started realizing early in the program that it didn't even take waiting till a judgment was entered. Many of these credit reporting companies were finding out the actual complaints before anybody even had a hearing. And they were using that to make credit uh, determinations about people uh, mm-hmm. independent. So. What we wanted to do was first always prevent people from being forcibly removed from the property if we can, uh, but secondarily avoid the, the eviction judgment altogether if it's possible to work around it. Uh, and because we had this program set up in 2017 and it had already had a couple of years of effectiveness before the onset of COVID, when COVID came, it wasn't a, a stretch for us to understand kind of who was going to be evicted, what we needed to do in order to uh, uh, reduce the number of people who are gonna be evicted, and for DSS to have uh, various rental assistance fund pots uh, for people available.
2: Great, right. I think that's it. Anything else I can,
3: for John to put together for us? Um... I don't think if I'm missing anything. Well, I always like just give people general tips. So if, if you are living in a place that happens to have habitability concerns, it is important that you document those concerns and provide notice to the landlord. And I, I always push for people to do that in writing. Um, well, what is su- an example of a habitability, habitability concern? Absolutely. Things like um, roach infestations, uh, we've seen rat infestations, we've seen molds, we've seen uh, structural integrity issues. So if your ceiling falls in or your floorboards are falling in, um, plumbing, electric. Uh, I had a case many years ago where every time somebody went to cook, the, the plug where the stove was plugged in would spark and catch on fire. Um, things like that. Uh, anything that threatens the health and safety of the occupants in the unit uh, is a potential habitability concern. And landlords in North Carolina, they have a right to know if there are habitability concerns in the unit so that they can exercise a degree of repair over those concerns. But what we also know is most people rely on the landlord's reporting systems in order to get things done. So they say, well, I called them and I told them about the problem and they told me they would make a work order. The problem is I have no way of accessing that work order until we get in the midst of a case and I file discovery requests. And ultimately for us, because the volume of the cases that we're getting is so high, we won't have time to process discovery requests for every case that we get. So if you come to us and you already have a copy of the letter that you sent to the landlord that's dated, or you come to us and you already have a uh, inspection from Durham County's Neighborhood Improvement Services uh, that will show that the landlord was cited for certain code violations, then it helps us tremendously in trying to negotiate and advocate on behalf of the tenant.
2: You know, that sounds like good advice for any tenant, whether you are at risk of eviction or not. Just don't you think just to document every
3: instance of um, problems like that? Absolutely absolutely and the the benefit of the rent abatement is if granted the rent abatement can be backdated to when you initially informed the landlord of the issue so if you've been dealing with an issue for four months and now you finally missed the month of payment because you lost your job with covid well it's a strong possibility that the abated rent would offset what is owed anyway and he couldn't get an eviction against you anyway but but we we need the facts and the evidence in order to make those arguments and establish that, <clears throat> excuse me, and establish those things in court. So it is important, even if you don't at this point foresee needing an attorney or needing our services, still document any problems that you have as well as whatever response that you get from the landlord and just keep a file so that if it does have to escalate, then we will have everything that we need to uh, advocate for you good advice. So time, date, what the problem was,
2: all of that. Absolutely. Good advice. All right. I'm going to stop recording. Thanks, Jesse.
3: Thank you.
1: So uh, Latani had a conversation with Jesse McCoy the other day to kind of catch up a little bit on uh, some of the the new current state right now of tenant protections that do and don't exist, uh, uh, you know, related to CARES Act, related to the CDC moratorium, uh, what's going on, what they're looking out for from a legal perspective at this point in time, um, and what might be coming down the line. But, you know, obviously one of the things that still just that just happened since Biden uh, took office was the extension of the moratorium, such as it is, through March. Kind of just like jumping right into this, you know, we've been doing a lot of work tracking evictions, obviously, that have been happening throughout the pandemic. Matt, I know you've been looking at that super closely and have written on our, our blog about it, too, that there are more than 3,000 evictions that happened this past year anyway, even with the pandemic and all of the different controls in place to protect people. And then uh, seven, 775 or so of those happened since the CDC moratorium specifically was enacted on September 4th. Um, so we have you know, obviously big gaps and uh, loopholes and maybe just flat out sort of uh, denial of, of the regulations that apply to landlords too. Like Some of them, the GSC is a particular one that has defied that month after month and evicted more people in Durham than any other actor. But um, just to to in big picture say it, you know, this past year we've seen um, a lot that's happened. A lot has not happened. Um, a year that feels particularly tragic. The gaps in policy and programs that working people have experienced um, are inescapable and so problematic. Uh, in the midst of it, some of the most inspiring and most motivating, and um, and oftentimes most helpful, it seems like, even in very small ways, work has come from people organizing, people supporting each other and their neighbors, and from young people pushing the boundaries on what's needed and what's necessary at this time. So Genesis, you've done a ton of work with your peers at New Tech and others to uh, hear what people are experiencing and learn from what they want from uh, protections for tenants and from policies and programs. And Matt, I know you've been doing a ton of work on a, a few different fronts and know the information well about what's going on really property by property. And safe. I know that you've done a lot of work over time in terms of whether it's just like, like straight up training young folks for organizing and also being involved in work yourself. Um, I just feel like you've got great perspectives to offer to uh, the community learning here and the knowledge. So um, I've opened the floor. I'll step back.
2: One thing I will say, though, is that when we talked to Jesse, um, one thing that stood out was that he said the government's response has been with using moratoria, which keeps people in their units, but it doesn't pay anybody. And so I think that's also a good uh, springboard because it kind of both sides the issue a little bit because from a landlord's perspective, he said that they feel like their property has been commandeered by the government, he said, Um, but then there's a whole tenant side. So that's where I think you all come in and the work that you're doing. So I'd be interested to hear your thoughts about that.
4: I have to say, I don't feel super bad for landlords who are in that situation. Um, It is something where folks, like, ideally, the reason that you make money off of having capital, the logic is that you're taking a risk, which if I don't know if we're all operating operating in that framework anyway. But um, I think it's really more like really sad that we haven't seen more tenant production and that like because the landlords are not getting paid, like the real reality is that folks are gonna get thrown out of their homes and that the government really hasn't done much of anything. And I think we're seeing this kind of patchwork, right? Of like various institutions. Oh my God, my computer, sorry. Um, We're seeing this patchwork of various institutions that are sort of trying to come together to handle this crisis. um, Whether that is like local social services offering stopgap pay legal aid trying to just give a trickle out of this flood of people, Um, legal representation, even just like homeless shelters. Um, A lot of people are trying to come through to sort of deal with this crisis. And I think what I've really seen is that it's not enough. Like the state is making some efforts, but nowhere near what needs to happen. Because I think what needs to happen fundamentally really um, requires some challenges and asking some questions about what we see with private property right and so in a lot of my work i think a lot of what we're doing is like working in solidarity with our neighbors who just really like aren't getting what they need and not only aren't getting what they need but have no idea how to find what they need um, receive really poor messaging and education on it so that's a lot of what we do is honestly just trying to redirect people and help them with things that are as basic as moving. Um, it's And I think people, people are pretty used to um, having really inadequate social services and being really precarious, which is unfortunate. And I think that's why mutual aid work is always really important. Um, but yeah, during this pandemic, I think there's like the social safety net is not even a net, it's just sort of like, and so many people just fall right through on purpose by design.
5: Yeah, I have a lot of thoughts too, Um, because personally, I feel like my demographic or the demographic that I was working with and the demographic that I'm in, I feel like we feel like we don't have a lot to worry about when it comes to um, housing at the moment, because you know, um, most of us are not, how shall I say, like, Purchasing housing, but we're still very affected by this because I know, especially in the listening session, especially while I was doing this work, there were a lot of people who were telling me that, oh, my um, parents, you know, they've experienced evictions before and that has harmed them or, you know, housing instability is like something that's um not uncommon in their family or something it's not even uncommon in my situation because personally one time I remember my aunt losing her job and then she her having to come stay with us and like that did disrupt my learning a little bit because I personally had to like give up my room for her to be in there but it was all right over the long run because like you know the situation you know you have to it comes what housing instability, especially in my demographic, it does like put you in an unstable environment. It does disrupt your learning and it can be worse um, in many different levels. It's not the same, you know? Um, And I feel like what I would say when it comes to the question, like what, Organizers and people in the community can do. I think for youth, especially, it's learning about the issue and then trying to combat the issue. And then I think also, like, you know, trying to go to local communities and, like, really, like, you know, let people know how it's affecting you. And then also, like, doing what you can to, like, advocate against to advocate for something better because a lot of youth especially in the listening session had a lot of ideas on what they wanted to do after learning more about it and they realized like pitfalls like mental health, you know, and also like the need for right to housing and right to a counsel, um, a counselor and all this stuff. And they said a lot of like important things during the listening session. So yeah.
2: So we've been talking about we mentioned this listening session we had. We had it back in December. And um, we talked to, we had about 40 um, New Tech Hillside New Tech high school students and faculty who participated, which was really um, incredible. What were your, other than what you just mentioned, Genesis, what other key takeaways did you find from that?
5: Um, once I, I typed some of them down in a document that I'm looking at. And the ones that I typed down are like community building positive community affirmations, community impact, growth and learning, prioritizing housing, and the push to give voice to the voiceless. And some others that we wrote down is um compassion plus understanding, mental health, you know, personal activism, policies like rent control, right to housing, right to counselor, um, right, <laughs> right to counsel, <laughs> and then democratic approaches, and then tax the rich, you know. So those were some key takeaway, key themes that we got from the listening session. Oh, and it was like other students too, um, not just from Hillside New Tech who came to that listening session. Oh, that's right.
2: right. Mm-hmm. I think one of my favorite parts was towards the end when we asked if we had a, if you had a magic wand, what changes would you make? And that could have been like with policy or, or anything that we, um, or process. So we'll throw that out to you all. You know, if you had a magic wand when it comes to tenant organizing or tenant activism, what what would you change?
0: I think um, I think something that I would change um, is being able to give people a better sense of the kind of power that they have um, because they think. Um, I think too often, um, when we talk about organizing, we are talking about, um, you know, pressuring these other people who have power to do something um, about our situations. Um, when um, there are so many things that we can do um, to, like, change our realities together. Um, in the moment um and are by doing it ourselves for example um like um educating each other rent strikes um the like amazing work that like moms for housing um on the west coast is doing um and sort of like um we don't have to wait we don't have to wait on people to give us things um I guess that's very specific to like tenant organizing. If I had a magic wand to change like, you know, anything, (laughs) um, everybody would have a place to live and not have to worry about any of this. Um, I think also like another thing sort of going back to this like moratorium piece um, in terms of like what, you know, what is offered to us from you know these people who supposedly have all the power, um, is like a big reason why these uh, there are so many evictions happening under this mor even under this moratorium is how many um, like technicalities and loopholes there are, and also the fact that like not only are they not paying landlords, um, but they're not you know tenants aren't getting paid to stay home right now um like the stimulus checks have been literally jokes (laughs) um and so like and also um these moratoriums aren't like canceling or forgiving people's debt to their landlords so um you know they can be extended and and like the can can be kicked down the road but people are um or, or like landlords are racking up um all this debt um from their tenants that people are gonna be really hard-pressed to find a way to pay when whenever that comes through and then also i think especially like right now um with all the evictions that we're seeing um like as long as landlords are able to say that they are evicting their tenant for a reason other than the fact that their tenant isn't paying rent um, they can they can go through with that eviction. Um, and, um, and that's very easy for them to like, you know, just write, make up reasons um, to put down on their on their paperwork. And, and also um, in terms of like eviction courts proceedings and something that we um, have been doing um, as part of eviction court support. Um, is providing people with the 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 physical paperwork of the CDC moratorium um, because the onus is on tenants um, to have and present that to their landlords in the eviction proceedings um, so so even in these cases where uh, landlords are evicting tenants specifically for failure to pay rent you know in this like thing that is specifically, um, that the moratorium is specifically supposed to prevent. Um, if you don't know that you have to bring that piece of paperwork to court, um, then uh, then you're out of luck and the landlord is still allowed to and able to go through with what they're doing. So I think that like, um, when, like the, the degree to which this moratorium and moratoriums in general are not enough um, is is huge. And I think that, like, um, I think that this pandemic um, and this, like, the situation that this is putting so many people in, um, and the way that this is causing, like, the displacement um, and death of so many people um, in this pandemic, I think, like, um, I heard a statistic that, like, uh, I think, like, 10,000 COVID deaths um, have been the direct result of evictions um, because of people not being able to shelter in place and isolate um, once they are displaced from their homes and so I think like um, I think this pandemic it really shines a light on how um, the the system of um, of charging people rent for, um, having a place to stay, which is a, which is a human right, um, is fundamentally, um, unsustainable.
4: Yeah, that would be, um, my magic wand. In, in the larger picture, I think you have address some like really, really wonderful um, policy specifics and policy shortcomings. But I think for me, if I had a magic wand and could truly do anything, I would just try to decommodify housing. And what I mean when I say that is that housing has become this thing where like the value we get out of living from it is completely separate from like the value people get from trading it, buying and selling it. Um, we've been reading a really excellent book that talks a lot about this lately, um, John and I have. And yeah, I think the logical conclusion is that like we just have a housing system that is more prioritized around protecting people's investments um, and making profits than it is making sure people have a stable place to live, um, that they have a place to rest that they have a place that's sort of the anchor of their social network, whether that's their family or their neighbors. Um, Yeah, so when people lose that, I think it's like, it's a really huge and violent thing. And I, it's really sad, but unfortunately, like the way that our economic system has come to work is that buying and selling land and housing is pretty much fundamental for keeping everything running, right? And I think it's exposing this huge contradiction in the system um, as we've seen so many of these contradictions exposed during COVID. Um, but, I mean, there really is no answer other than, with within systemic frameworks other than just Paying, paying paying, the landlords with tax money, which doesn't really feel like that's it either. And I think we're also seeing a similar thing with like the government's not gonna pay people to stay home because then they can't force them to keep going to work and force them to make people money. Um, and that sort of gives people an idea that there could be some sort of alternative. Like look at last time they paid all of us to stay home. We were all in the streets for a million years. Like, I think, that and you're seeing it even with Biden right so we have like this transfer of power from Trump to Biden and I think a lot of people are really excited because in some ways things will probably be marginally better. Um, and at the same time, uh, we're not really having any major solution like we have yet to see a substantive. Declaration around like what we're really going to do about housing and pandemic and paying people to stay home um, and meanwhile, like great trans people can serve in the military, Harriet Tubman's on the $20 bill, but we're not really seeing any power redistribution even under this new leadership. And I think that's what really stands out to me, right? Is that like the way that housing is arranged and the way that jobs are arranged, um, like fundamentally the system does not have an answer for this crisis we're experiencing right now. And all we can do is realize our collective power and you know, I think have the guts to envision something that's better. And I think so many people are afraid to because it's hard and it's scary and we get so much education saying we can't, but that's my uh, soapbox.
5: Um, for me, I agree. I think in like semantics or like systematically we do need to like decommodify housing and make it a right. But if I had a magic wand, I think I wish, I would wish to liberate the world from racism or like systematic racism. Because while in my research, while doing my research um, on like um, housing rights, I was, it's so interesting because while I was in this internship, I was also in a class called social issues and we were discussing like um, issues or social Mm -hmm. ills that are plaguing our world right now. And so housing was um, housing rights was a big discussion in that, and we learned that like black women are um, black women with children are the people most affected by the evictions crisis and just to me this it it makes sense because um society has never really dealt with the plague that was slavery um, in our past, and we've kind of just haven't really like addressed the real wealth gaps and all all of that within society and if I had a magic wand I would really want us to deal with systematic racism and realize like if we're really trying to like liberate you know the world from racism housing isn't housing is like really involved with that so yeah well
2: my magic wand would be um to house people i used to drive around i still some well i still do occasionally drive around durham and look at um boarded up houses look at land that was sitting there and just think what can we do to make those available and open to people so they can live there and um you know as idealistic as it seems it doesn't it, it seems realistic to me i don't see why we couldn't do that instead of having houses that are boarded um so I'd, I'd like to, I like daydreaming and, and trying to plan how I could be part of that solution.
1: Yeah, I love the the opportunity to, to, to be aspirational about what what we should be creating instead of feeling the The sort of I think, like Mad said, the sort of what we're we're taught to expect is very very small and very narrow, and and we're often led by um, you know administrators, government folks, to to accept the limitations of state statute first, and then talk about how to make sure that housing is profitable for developers when they make it affordable. Um, But I think. Uh, stepping farther back and maybe being a, a little bit more comfortable with, with being, uh, aspiring for better for all of us, uh, uh, for racial justice reasons, for health reasons, for all of, uh, of what we just talked about, uh, I feel like that the social commitments of property are, are very um, unnamed. People don't have expectations of what is required to, of a property owner or what ownership really means or entails. But if, if nothing else, there is a, such a wicked uh, polarity now with people making tremendous amounts of money off of housing, even during this pandemic, while other people are, are going through, albeit in some ways familiar because of our, our inequality in this community, uh, a familiar level of precarity, but also one that is, is worsened and made more, um, uh, more threatening than, than before. Uh, We have this this sort of polarized experience. But for everybody who's making money off of property, for the the GSCs of our community that are still evicting hundreds of people in the middle of this uh, and have property throughout the Southeast and do very well, um, maybe even for the the health companies that that are making record profits uh, during the midst of this, what are the ways that their ownership of land is also... Uh, it, it comes with commitments and obligations for community value and for community uh, support and creation of of opportunities and safety and protection for people. So I, I don't know. I guess that's just to say that I feel like this notion of housing rights and uh, of of human rights that is um, that's an essential part of what the transformation is that has to happen. It really, is very practically about like the pe- for the people that have. The land and have uh, profitable properties. What are the commitments that we expect them to honor? And starting to name them, name the bad actors and the the acts that that happen in our in our society. Um, Acknowledge where government and others have enabled it all along, and then also use our imaginations about what comes next. In saying we expect you know for people to have housing, and it's not something that they have to pay their income for. We accept that people have to have health care and they shouldn't have to pay for it. And same thing with education. Uh, but those commitments and expectations don't seem to be very present in American society at this point. So we have to create them and talk our way into them and act our way into them, which I think is such a beautiful thing about the organizing that all of you do is it's participating and acting our way into that future.
4: It's my long-winded answer.
1: <laughs> Other thoughts then, may, as we, we'll have to close fairly soon here, but maybe a closing thought from each of you about um, what you think should happen next with um, whether it's tenant organizing or uh, local policy and legal protections for folks or what you personally want to take on next.
4: I can go um yeah I think there are a whole lot of things and we've touched on a lot of stuff that needs to happen imminently I think like strengthening mutual aid I'm just going to say is like going to be a constant um need but one thing that I think isn't super obvious that I do just want to highlight while I'm here is um, I would really like to see some kind of coordinated effort within the city Um, to take a look at some of these landlords that have mass evicted during the pandemic illegally. And it's sort of shocking to me that the city hasn't investigated that a little more or figured it out because some of them have evicted like 75 households worth of people. And there's no way that all of those people are getting evicted because they're reaching their lease for a reason other than paying. Like that's just really fishy. Um, So I think that um, is really, really important. I think the city should figure out a way to, or the county rather should figure out a way to sanction those property owners because what they're doing is abysmal and disgusting. And I think sort of on that note, I think the work that I do, I feel really grateful. I get to do it just doing so much research on um, evictions and housing. Um, I think the city really like the city and the county, and I think the government in general, really should be doing this work itself. It shouldn't have to be nonprofit work. They should be investigating um, who is getting evicted. Like, who are these problem landlords? What are some of our major things that we deal with over and over? That like we can look at these trends and we can help people improve their housing situation. Um, obviously, you don't really expect power to investigate itself a whole lot, so it doesn't surprise me that that hasn't happened. But Yeah, I will just say, I think more involvement in terms of tracking these trends on term of the city is what I would like to see in the immediate future because whatever small shreds of policy we do have to protect tenants, um, which are obviously not enough and we should simultaneously be asking for more, but whatever policy we do have um, needs to be properly enforced and someone needs to take that on as something that's important.
5: For me, um, I'm personally, I feel like the next thing I want to do is like, you know, help youth get connected in youth led advocacy. And like, also, you know, be informed more on, you know, social issues and like, political um, things in our society that need to be dealt with, but aren't really being addressed that are really like, leaving people in pitfalls or like I don't I I don't know how I feel about calling it pitfalls because I also feel like it's institutionally designed but that's a different conversation um and for me I think on my front I do a lot of like youth-led organization and um I'm in a program called you know liberate to educate where we're basically trying to um address the educational racism that we see in our um school system today um with like you know um the school to prison pipeline and we want more um rehabilitative um structures in there and um and i am in a lot of like other organizations that really are focused on like you know that type of organization and i feel like what i think needs to be done from youth at least When it comes to housing, it's like really realizing that we can do like a lot together, you know, and like we may not have that much of a say, but we can like if we come in, we can like Have a say like we are the future. And so I think, you know, recognizing that and using utilizing our power and all that stuff to help each other and be there for each other will be good. So yeah.
0: I think, um, I think something that I'd like to see in addition to, to all of those things that have been named um, is um, I would like, uh, I think it's uh, vitally important that um, the, the county courthouse be shut down. Um, I think it is um, like a site of like really intense, um, sorry, can y'all hear me? And I. Uh,
4: you have a lot of like
0: scratching around. Is this better? That is better. Okay, great. <laughs> um, yeah, I think that uh, it's vitally important that the, the county courthouse get shut down um, Especially right now in this pandemic, because uh, it is what is enabling evictions to continue. Um, it is a huge site of um, COVID outbreaks, um, like almost nonstop, over and over, um, and um, and is also, you know, contributing to locking people up. And I think it's really important to draw the connections between, um, like, policing and housing, um, because right, when we think about like, when we're driving around and we see all this empty housing, um, like the only thing that really is stopping us from just going in there and opening it up so that anyone can live there is uh, the threat of violence from police. Um, and also um, the ways that um, the police in Durham criminalize our um, not having a home um, is really extreme and is also contributing to this like huge spreading um, of COVID and to deaths. Um, I think just um, last week, um, a woman named um, Brittany Kittrell was um, the latest um, in a series of folks who have been killed by the Durham County Jail. Um, And I think that um it is really critical i would really like to see um more people in durham holding uh the sheriff's department accountable um especially uh given the sort of like progressive platform that sheriff burkhead was uh was elected on um the the level the level of harm and violence that um, that the sheriff's department is complicit in um, in the county courthouse and specifically tied to evictions right because the sheriff's department um, are the people who who physically lock people out of their homes um, so I would like to see um, I would like to see those people have a harder time doing their jobs um, and. Um, and I would also, I also think that, um, it, it would, it is difficult, um, and, um, and the police make it, uh, dangerous. Um, but I think that, like, the kind of work, um, that, um, Moms for Housing on the West Coast and, um, the sort of, like, um, in Seattle, I think the the Red House, like eviction resistance project, um, is doing um, and sort of these like um, actions where people are just um, are taking their housing um, and um, and refusing to let uh, to let the police and let landlords take it away from them um, is really important. We'd love to see more of that.
1: i'll pass the mic back to Latanya, but before i i do um just to say gratitude to all of you too for the work that you have done with us together and my dog wants to contribute to this conversation too and share how much he loves each of you as well um (laughs) but uh it's been awesome and i'm always learning more from from each of you all the time so i appreciate that and i look forward to more of it Latanya, i'll pass it back
2: I'm just gonna ditto everything you said, everything you and the dog said, and um, also just appreciate working with each of you and um, looking forward to being more idealistic and pushing our idealistic agenda and watching people become more powerful. Cause I agree with Safe that part of the, what we want is to know our own power. So thank you. That's all for our first episode of Who Owns Durham? Thanks for listening and a special thank you to our guests, Jesse McCoy, Genesis Dankwa, Safe Widman, Mad Bankson and Tim Stallman for joining us.
1: And a special thanks again to the folks at the Annie E. Casey Foundation who supported this project, Youth Voices and the right to housing during COVID-19. And thanks to our friends at the National Neighborhood Indicators Partnership as well for connecting us with peers in other cities who were supporting young people doing research during this pandemic.
2: Learn more about some of what we talked about, visit our website, www.dataworks-nc.org. Until next time.
4: possible, y'all.